the Department of History at Virginia Tech, I'm Ladale Winling, and this is the Virginia Political History Podcast Project. We'll be exploring politics in the Old Dominion, past and present. Episode 2 was researched and produced by Ellen Boggs. Hi. In your episode, you look at the case of Loving versus Virginia, Virginia couple, Richard and Mildred Loving, whose interracial marriage was subject to state and then federal review and eventually made its way to the Supreme Court. What did you find in the course of your research? So the most compelling thing that I found in my research was the link between massive resistance, which was Virginia's political response to Brown versus Board of Education, where they were really pushing back against the desegregation of public schools. So the link between that and these anti-miscegenation laws and reinforce the authority of the state in determining or preserving, actually, um, Jim Crow in the face of civil rights. Mildred Loving is really the most compelling person. Um, You know, she was 19 when they were arrested for being married. She was pregnant with their second child, and she ended up spending almost a month in jail when Richard only spent a night in jail. And she's the one who wrote to Robert Kennedy in order to get this case in motion And really, uh, she rose above all of these obstacles that she was facing because of her race to fight for her family. Mildred was a black woman, while Richard was a white man. Is that right? Exactly, yes. State or national political and legal trends really have a dramatic impact on individual people's lives. Even though she said that uh, she didn't really want to have anything to do with civil rights, I think a lot of what she did later after, um, after their arrest was directly influenced by civil rights. Great. Thanks, Ellen. Thank you. Mildred Dolores Jeter and Richard Perry Loving of Caroline, Virginia, married in June of 1958. They had a small ceremony in Washington, D.C., and then returned home to Central Point, Virginia, After a couple weeks back home, Mildred and Richard were asleep at her parents' house when they were jerked out of bed and arrested. Their marriage was illegal in the eyes of the law because Mildred was an African-American woman and Richard was a white man. It was about 2 a.m. And I saw this light, you know, and I woke up and it was the policeman standing beside the bed. And he told us to get up, that we was under arrest. And anyway, they carried us to Bowling Green and uh, locked us up. The Lovings would go on to fight the charges brought against them to the highest court in the land. But before that, they struggled for their own recognition and acceptance, just as Americans nationwide struggled for equality under the law for African Americans. In this episode, we'll explore the overlap between politics and the law, especially as they are connected to race, using the regulation of marriage as sort of a case study. The Lovings were married at the height of massive resistance, which was a reactionary movement in Virginia enacted by politicians in opposition to the Supreme Court's decision and Brown v. Board of Education, which desegregated public schools. The prosecution of the Lovings was part of the attitudes reflected in massive resistance, and their story is also part of a longer history of regulation of interracial marriage in the state. The first Virginian law to forbid interracial marriage passed in 1691 as part of an act for suppressing outlying slaves, which is a direct quote from the legislation. This sort of law is called an anti-miscegenation law and enforces racial segregation. The 1691 law particularly singled out white women and people of color, namely slaves and Native Americans. 
and the punishment for interracial marriage at this time was banishment and exile, which was later changed to a hefty fine and time served in jail. The next major legislation regarding marriage in Virginia was the Cohabitation Act of 1866, right after the Civil War, which recognized marriages between former slaves who had lived together as man and wife. Interracial marriage, however, was still completely void and illegal, and punishment was especially brutal for white women who entered relationships with African-American men. In one case in 1871, a woman in Wythe County, Virginia, was tarred and feathered, then exiled after the community discovered her cohabitation with a black man. The anti-miscegenation laws that specifically applied to the Loving case were passed during Jim Crow's chokehold on African-American rights. Virginia passed the Racial Integrity Act in 1924, which specifically criminalized interracial marriage and intimate relationships. Anti-miscegenation laws like this one reflected the longer trends on racial relations in the U.S. and basically reinforced attitudes surrounding marriage that had already existed. I spoke with Dr. Peter Wallenstein, a civil rights historian who wrote a book on the Loving case about the Racial Integrity Act and preceding regulation of marriage in Virginia. Well, I've never thought that the Racial Integrity Act was more than symbolically important. Or a lot, a lot more. I mean, it's true that Mrs. Loving, no matter how she identified herself, was colored mm-hmm. under the Racial Integrity Act. But the chances are good she'd have been uh, on the other side of the great racial divide even before that. And certainly the legislation itself making it a crime, uh, stipulating a prison sentence. In the 1950s, only about 4% of Americans supported interracial marriage, according to Gallup polls. Virginia's Racial Integrity Act reinforced this attitude for decades before 1958 and the Loving's arrest. And in 1960, interracial marriages made up only 0.4% of all marriages in the United States, and 50% of those marriages were between a white man and an African-American woman like Mildred and Richard. By the time the Lovings were married, 24 other states across the country had laws in place that specifically outlawed interracial marriage. So even though the Racial Integrity Act was a symbol of Jim Crow, it still held real-life consequences for people like the Lovings. The Lovings were arrested on July 11, 1958, in violation of Virginia's anti-miscegenation laws, specifically Section 20-59, which assigned felony charges to interracial marriage. They were also charged with breaking Section 20-58, which outlawed interracial couples from marrying out of state and then returning to Virginia, which is exactly what Mildred and Richard did. Almost 10 years later, the Lovings challenged these laws in a Supreme Court case where the court unanimously ruled in their favor. Back in July of 1958, however, the Lovings didn't know that they could be arrested for being married. Their arrest came as a shock, and Richard served a single night in the Bowling Green Jail while Mildred was held there for almost a month. They were both under $1,000 bonds, but the police said that they would put Richard back in jail if Mildred were released. Mildred later told a reporter that one night during her time at the Bowling Green Jail, the sheriff threatened to put a male inmate in her cell, which really scared her. She was about 19 years old at the time, pregnant, and had already had a child with Richard. She was released into her father's custody on the condition that he made sure that she showed up to court, and she did. In January of 1959, Mildred and Richard appeared in court to plead guilty to the crime of marriage. In January, they had the trial, and they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years. But the way I understood it, the lawyer said that we could come back to visit, you know, when we wanted to. 
The Lovings moved to D.C. with their two kids right after the conviction, as their sentence was suspended on the condition that they leave Virginia and not come back for 25 years. They stayed with Mildred's cousin in D.C., but the couple was extremely homesick and frustrated that they could not go back to their family and friends in Caroline County. When they did try to go visit, they were arrested once again. The stress of their situation came to a head in 1964 when their son Donald was hit by a car in D.C. while he was playing in the street. Donald had some scrapes and bruises, but other than that, he was uninjured. Still, Mildred and Richard felt caged in their city life and worried for their children's safety. They decided that going back home to Caroline County was the best decision for their family. This prompted Mildred to write to Robert F. Kennedy, the U.S. Attorney General at the time, asking for his help in overriding or challenging the decision that had exiled the Lovings. Here's a clip of Mildred's letter read by one of the Lovings' lawyers that later represented them in the Supreme Court case. We have three children and cannot afford an attorney. We wrote to the Attorney General. He suggested that we get in touch with you for advice. Please help us if you can. Hope to hear from you real soon. Yours truly, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Loving. And it was that simple letter that got us into this not-so-simple case. Her letter wrote on the wave of the civil rights movement, though Mildred claimed that she wasn't concerned with civil rights and just wanted to go home. I found it hard to believe that the push for civil rights had no influence on Mildred in her letter, which was written five years after her sentence, and almost the same time as the passing of the Civil Rights Act. I asked Dr. Wallenstein about the significance of contemporary events on Mildred's letter to Kennedy. The spring and summer of 1963, uh, I think, helped convince Mrs. Loving that there was a point to seeking some kind of assistance. So she wrote a letter to Bobby Kennedy, Attorney General, of the United States asking, can you help? And he said, no, but there's this other group. Maybe they can. That was part of it. Um, but it's true, too, that by the time her case, by the time the Loving's case came to the court, all the other major props of Jim Crow had been taken down. Right? Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65. This was one big remaining pillar in that entire edifice. And so the world had already changed in an awful lot of ways. And the whole culture had shifted in the past five, ten years. Yeah. It would have been impossible to get that decision very much earlier. So the politically charged atmosphere of civil rights did influence Mildred and the events after her letter to Kennedy. Kennedy sent her letter to a Virginian lawyer with the ACLU, Bernard Cohen. He and another ACLU lawyer, Philip Hirschkup, represented the Lovings in their fight for justice and recognition under the law. These statutes are slavery statutes. They're meant to keep the Negro people in the badges and bonds of slavery. The outrageous civil effects of these statutes are not always apparent right away. For example, if Richard Loving were to die, then Mildred Loving would not be able to collect Social Security benefits as his widow. Uh, what is fundamentally important, though, is we ask the court to decide that a state may not pay, pass a law which proscribes marriage between two consenting, competent adults based on race alone. There was little resistance to the Loving decision, at least compared to the literal massive resistance that met the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which called for the integration of public schools. Massive resistance set the tone for Virginia's political climate surrounding race and desegregation in the 1950s. 
It also reinforced the same attitudes on race and interracial marriage that led to the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. Virginia Senator and former Governor Harry F. Byrd spearheaded massive resistance as the white male-dominated political campaign that attempted to prevent desegregation at all costs. Massive resistance culminated in the Stanley Plan, a set of legislation named after then-Governor Thomas Stanley that passed in 1956. The Stanley Plan was crafted specifically to preserve racial segregation in Virginia's public schools. In 1958 and 1959, the same years that the Lovings were arrested and charged, multiple public schools in Virginia, as well as the entire school system in Prince Edward County, were shut down due to Byrd's efforts and massive resistance. The governor of Virginia during the Loving's arrest was Democrat Lindsey Allman. He also served as the state attorney general who, during his term, argued for the segregation of public schools in 1954 and 1955. In an oral history interview conducted from 1968, Allman discussed his approach as attorney general to segregation. He said, I did everything I could as a lawyer, honorably I trust, to get the Supreme Court to adhere to the separate but equal doctrine which had been announced in 1898, the Plessy decision, and I fought with everything I had and lost. He goes on to say that the decision to integrate public schools caused a lot of disrupt and unrest in Virginia, and that he saw it as his job to preserve the separate school systems and accommodate the people who were upset. Though Allman wasn't exactly Harry Byrd's top pick to keep his machine rolling, he was certainly preferable to the Republican candidate in the 1957 race for governor. Allman ran against Theodore Dalton, a Republican who would have upheld the decision of Brown versus Board of Education. On January 21st, 1959, just a couple weeks after the Lovings were charged for the crime of their marriage, Allman delivered an address where he dedicated himself to massive resistance and segregated schools. Be not dismayed by recent judicial deliverances. I propose to restore the tax revenues of this commonwealth to the control of the people. They and they alone will decide these issues. United in the common purpose of defending constitutional government and advancing the welfare of our children with determination more relentless than ever before. We have just begun to fight. Allman's election as governor reflects the powerful appeal of massive resistance in Virginia during the 1950s. His loyalty to the Byrd organization, however, was tested when the Virginian Supreme Court ruled that the Stanley Plan was unconstitutional. Going against Byrd and his followers, Ullman ultimately decided not to challenge the decision. In the same 1968 oral history, he said that he knew that any governor who challenged the court decision was acting as an individual, not as a governor. He said he tried his best to reconcile this with Senator Byrd's thinking, but Byrd told him to stand his ground and not allow integration in Virginia, and Ullman told Byrd that he had done everything that he could but would not violate federal law. Massive resistance had weakened under Ullman, but it wasn't quite finished in Virginia. So what does this have to do with the Lovings exactly? Well, massive resistance reinforced the idea that marriage should be left up to state regulation, just like the segregation of public schools. In fact, Robert White Button, Virginia's attorney general during the Loving Supreme Court case, was an avid supporter of Byrd and massive resistance during his term as a Virginia senator. 
Assistant Attorney General R.D. Mickelwain III, the man who argued the state's defense of anti-miscegenation laws in Loving v. Virginia, also subscribed to massive resistance and its protection of segregation. In his argument before the Supreme Court, Mickelwain emphasized the role of the state in regulating marriage as a way to ensure the welfare of society. We start with a proposition on this connection that it is the family which constitutes the structural element of society and that marriage is the legal basis upon which families are formed. Consequently, this court has held in numerous decisions over the years that society is structured on the institution of marriage, that it has more to do with the welfare and civilizations of a people than any other institutions, and that out of the fruits of marriage spring relationships and responsibilities with which the state is necessarily required to deal. Button and his office defended racial segregation laws in the 1964 Griffin v. the County School Board of Prince Edward County case, which was three years before the Loving case. In the Prince Edward County case decision, the Supreme Court dealt a huge blow to massive resistance by ruling that the closing of all the public schools in Prince Edward County was unconstitutional. Button's assistant attorneys and their investment in massive resistance were dealt another blow in 1967 when the Supreme Court ruled in Mildred and Richard Loving's favor. By then, opposition to civil rights, as well as massive resistance itself, had died down. Mills Godwin was the governor of Virginia during the Supreme Court hearing of the Loving case, and he was also the last governor to be a part of massive resistance in the Byrd organization. He was elected to office in 1966 as a Democrat, and then later to a non-consecutive term in 1974 when he ran on the Republican ticket. He also served on the Virginia State Senate from 1952 to 1962. At first, he was a strong proponent of massive resistance, but slowly became more moderate as the 1960s progressed. In fact, Virginia's chapter of the NAACP endorsed his run for governor in 1965. His moderate stance on segregation and his distance from Harry Byrd caused some conservative Virginians to throw support behind a third-party candidate, William Story Jr. I couldn't find any reaction from Godwin regarding the loving decision, but his political evolution from a supporter of massive resistance to an NAACP-endorsed candidate implies that he would not have spoken out against the legalization of interracial marriage. In fact, there's hardly any coverage of public outcry against the outcome of Loving versus Virginia, which Peter Wallenstein credits as the changing attitudes of the time. The ruling when it came, came late enough in the game that there were pockets of resistance, to be sure, but it, it, and the fact that its significance can be calibrated in part by the fact that it's a front-page, top-of-the-fold New York Times story, right? But as far as any kind of systematic effort to overturn it, that kind of thing, you're hard-pressed to find any. What you do find is county clerks and the like uh, across a number of states, especially in the Deep South, refusing to grant marriage licenses. That happened in Alabama in 1970, just three years after the Supreme Court decided that anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional. Louis Voyer, a white man just like Richard Loving, and Phyllis Bett, an African-American woman like Mildred Loving, were refused a marriage license by probate judge C. Clyde Britton. Under Alabama law, interracial marriage was still illegal. A district court upheld the Loving decision in the United States versus Britain. Newspaper coverage on the decision was moderate, especially compared to the violent resistance to desegregation efforts in the 1950s and white dismissal of the civil rights movement. 
the Virginian pilot of Norfolk, Virginia, a newspaper intended for white audiences, didn't cry out against the legal impact of Loving versus Virginia, but I noted that the social discouragements to interracial marriage weren't overturned with the anti-miscegenation laws. This was certainly true. In 1968, a Gallup poll found that 20% of Americans supported interracial marriages, compared with 73% of the population that disapproved, which is certainly up from the 4% of approval in 1958, but interracial marriage remained a social taboo. Norfolk's predominant African-American news source, The Journal and Guide, was much more celebratory in its tone of coverage of the decision. Its front page boasted the headline reading, Top Court Junks Marriage Bars, above an editorial titled, Freedom of Choice at the Altar. The paper hailed the Lovings as persistent soldiers of civil rights and the court's decision as another obstacle knocked down for African Americans. It transforms the law of marriage and race. It frees up every single American on that front, regardless of whether they lived in states where such had already long been legal or not. It reflected and propelled the change both at once in the broader culture. And that was really, really important. The Supreme Court's decision in Loving versus Virginia echoed the political shifts of the 1960s regarding African-American rights and treatment under the law. The civil rights movement cleared a path for Mildred and Richard Loving to demand justice and beat back discriminatory attitudes emboldened by massive resistance, which ended a year later when it was also declared unconstitutional. The Loving case left an undeniable legacy in national policies regarding marriage. It was cited as a precedent in Bostick versus Schaefer, the case that legalized gay marriage in Virginia in 2014. It was then cited as a precedent for Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 federal case that legalized gay marriage for all Americans. And a year after Obergefell versus Hodges, a feature film on the Lovings and their fight for the legalization of interracial marriage was released as pop culture took on marriage inequality. There's also an HBO documentary on the case titled The Loving Story. Uh, Richard Loving passed away in 1975, and Mildred died from pneumonia in 2008. Neither lived to see their case's influence in expanding marriage rights, but their daughter Peggy issued a statement in 2007 in support of gay marriage. The Loving legacy continues today. The Virginia Political History Podcast Project was created by historians at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. This episode was researched and produced by Alan Boggs. That's where we'll meet. That's where we'll meet.